Hey y'all, welcome to The Road You Leave Behind. This is episode four here on Outsider. I'm your host, Marty Smith, and y'all, I can't get over these interviews with, with people I've listened to my entire life. Uh, today's guest, unbelievable, Clay Walker. He gave us so much time, nearly an hour, and he would have given us more time, but as we made our way towards the end of the interview, his internet had a different idea. Uh, his internet cut out, and so we didn't get to formally say goodbye and finish up the podcast, but y'all are going to be blown away by the unbelievable stories that Clay shared with us, everything from experiences real time as a young man with George Jones, with Merle Haggard, with all of these stars. You won't, you won't believe Doug Supernall's uh, injection into Clay Walker's path to country music superstardom and what's it like as someone who's been around the industry since the early 90s to have a single right now in 2021. His brand new single, Need a Bar Sometimes, is fantastic to me. It's a very mid-90s melody with 2021 production and it sounds fantastic it's an awesome awesome song make sure you guys check it out wherever you're streaming your music or buying your music right now i'm so grateful for clay's time you guys are going to be so fulfilled by this especially when we get to the end when we touch on clay's battle with multiple sclerosis and how that impacted his worldview his path and the way that he attacked his country music career. Y'all are gonna love this. Here's Clay Walker on The Road You Leave Behind. Marty. Hey, buddy, what's going on, big time? <laughs> How hey. you doing, bud? Brother, I'm amazing and blessed. How you getting along? I don't know if I've ever referred to myself as amazing, but I'd like to sometimes. Yeah, man. Hey, I'll tell you what, I, uh, my blessings are rich. So I, 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 I say it that way. Uh, you got a newborn? I do not have a newborn. No, I do not. There's a, I picture, have, there's a picture up of a newborn down there. Oh, Sam. Oh yeah. Sam has a newborn. Sam has a brand new little one. Yeah, me too. Let me shut that one. All yeah, right, Sammy, you, you, you rolling brother? Yeah, we're good, man. All right. Uh, Clay, I appreciate your time, brother. Uh, I know how busy you are, and uh, it's amazing to get to spend this time with you. First, I got a little bit of a bone to pick because you got me about five or six years, but you looked like you were about 21 years old since 1993. And that's some BS. Like, that ain't fair to the rest of us who got gray wrinkles. That ain't no good, man. How you do that? I guess it's just that cowboy life. I don't know. <laughs> it must be that cowboy that's life. That's flattering, though. Hey, I got to tell you, though, Marty, that's a, that's a nice compliment. I appreciate it very, very much. But, uh, I, I, I guess it's crazy. When I was a kid, I had a mustache, and so I always tried to look older. And then, but I had such a baby face, you know, and so it's just, my mama put it on me. That's all I can say. I'm, I'm you, uh, you are blessed. Uh, not, not many of us get that kind of blessing. I, I'll say, you know, you've been at it for a long time, man. And you got a new single out, uh, need a bar sometimes. It's fabulous for those of you guys who may not have heard it. make sure to go check it out. But, it's a consummate country music drinking song, and I love it because in this moment in time for all of us, when we can't gather, when we've been apart for so much, it really resonates. Who, whose idea was it? Where did, where did that idea come from? Really got a chance to write with a lot of great writers on, uh, on all of the songs on the, on the new album. And uh, this one... Uh, I wrote, I think, six of the cuts on the album. Uh, Jaron Boyer was a part of, and really great songwriter. And, you know, and that—that's the thing, as you know, Marty is—is is, uh, you got to have a great team, just like you. You know, you got to have a great production manager, somebody that really gets you and understands what what you want to accomplish in in an interview and in your show. And 
and in the songs, you know, I just, uh, my manager, TK Kimbrell really helped me. And, and so did Michael Knox, my producer, get in the right room with, with the right, correct songwriters, you know, for, for me. And, uh, and so the, the idea was floating around. We were writing on zoom, which was my first time to ever do that. And, you know, not a big fan of it, but, uh, <laughs> it, it's, I it, can see why. It certainly worked, you know, that day. And I was just sitting around and said, man, I said, I wish we were all down, you know, at losers, <laughs> you know, down yeah. having, a, having a beer and, you know, talking about the end of the day, because that's where the best ideas come up with, you know, is, is, is something just falls out of your mouth, you know, that's, that's natural and, and an idea is formed around it. And, and uh, I think one of the guys says, yeah, you're right. We do need a bar. And I went, Bing, bing, bing. Yep. <laughs> so that's where it came from and it, it's got the you know got the good elements in it you know of uh you know a bar is useful you know it's not just for crying in your beer you know it's living you might want it for meeting somebody you might need to just blow off some steam at the end of the day whatever and and i think that's the psychologically you know i think that the, the toll of the of the lockdowns or the you know stay in and and protect yourself is it's real you know there are people dying and there are people sick from COVID no doubt but uh, it has taken its psychological toll on this country and I don't know anybody that it hasn't affected and especially the kids man you know I've, I've got a lot of kids and and they they need their friends and and so it, it's uh, but the bar situation I think is I've always enjoyed bars you know it is it's always somebody smiling somebody somebody new to me and uh especially going there with a friend or two, uh, nothing wrong with that. I have three kids too. I have 15, 11 and eight, and they've been doing virtual learning for the entire year. And you're right. I mean, the, the psychological impact on them, I wonder what in 10 years, when we really know what it was, I wonder what it'll be. What, what, what's that void been for you guys who are artists who are so used to having that moment with your fans? And it's, and it's gone. It's not there right now. You know, we feel like we're dying on the vine, you know, it, it, and we're not, but it just feels that way, you know, and, uh, and I, I don't know what the impact of that is. I know I've been singing a lot, you know, at the house and, and honing my craft even more. And it, it's, I'll tell you what, the benefit of it is that, when you're on the road and you're singing a lot, you, you hurt your you hurt your voice. I don't care who you are, I don't care how correct you sing. There's always going to be some wear and tear, and uh, and you don't have time to heal up from it. And you got one show after another, you know. And and it's it's great to catch one of your favorite singers on a couple of days vocal rest. You know, if if you're going to a show, it really is. It's it's a great thing. And I can tell you that by being here, man, I have been able to take care of my throat sing you know and and just practice and and it is it's so inspiring but then at the end of the day i'm sitting there going who did i do it for <laughs> there's got to be somebody <laughs> i can sing to you know and so and uh so so yeah it it is psychologically wearing you know on the, all the the entertainers and i'm not i mean i'm not asking anybody to feel sorry for us but let me say something, man, there's a lot of entertainers who are hurting financially, you know, that especially newer artists that have just had a couple of hits, you know, when the COVID hit, because they were thinking, Hey, I've got, I'm making bank. I'm going to go buy a bus. I'm going to go buy a house. I'm going to go buy a new car. I'm going to put my kids in this uh, private school. Bam, that's gone, you know, and they still got notes on those, those things. And so believe me, there's plenty of people hurting in the, in, you know, in, our sector entertainment business is going to be the very last thing that opens back up, you know, where you have mass gatherings. And, you know, I, I think we have 10 shows on the books for the entire year. And most of those are privates, you know, just, just where you're, everybody is socially uh, distant. You know, my hope, you know, is that the vaccine, you know, allows people to get out and move and feel free. And even, even the, the folks who, who, opt not to get the vaccine you know that that's they're they're right you know uh but but still um they have the choice and the biggest thing we face and i want the fans to know this you know you i want you to be on the inside and understand this 
promoters want to do shows. Entertainers like me, we want to go do shows. Every show has an insurance underwriter. Somebody has to write the insurance on that show. And the reason we're not doing shows is because no insurance companies will touch it for fear of being, being sued of <laughs> COVID spreading and, uh, and the promoters or entertainers are everybody getting sued. And so until there is a vaccine available to everybody, you, you won't see us do shows. That means available to, not that everybody takes it, but would they have to have some in, uh, indemnification uh, and protection to go do the shows? And you're not going to see them until that happens. So I'm, I'm going, come on, come on, Johnson and Johnson and Moderna and Pfizer. Right. Come on, <laughs> come on. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, we, we want to get out there. It, it hurts. It hurts just sitting at home and, singing to yourself and uh especially when you're hitting really good notes and you're like man i want somebody to hear this <laughs> <laughs> what's the difference for you promoting a song in 2021 versus 93 that's a long well, road clay well i tell you it, it's pretty simple and and uh, not as fun tell you that because we're doing it like this like you and i right. are you know, and, and and we're used to getting out there and going by the radio stations and playing for fans, even if it's a handful of them. But I mean, actually touching people, you know, and, and not to sound creepy, but I just mean, you know, shaking oh, yeah. hands, putting your hand around somebody's neck, taking a picture. You know, those are, uh, I mean, entertainers are born for that kind of thing. And, you know, the... You know, I'm jealous, you know, when I see the football players down there not wearing any masks, you know, and they're playing football and doing what they love doing. I'm like, hey, I want to be doing what I love doing. I want people in those stands too, you know. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's different promoting a song in this under these conditions. But I would say too that, um, you know, with the different uh, streaming services out there, you, you, you have different – different kinds of audiences, which is very cool. You got people that still listen to the radio in their car, you know, like terrestrial radio. You got people that also listen to streaming services and you got people that watch TikTok. I've had the strangest right. things happen to me in the last last month that I can't even believe. You know, I'm I was in Beaumont, Texas where I'm where I'm from and my uh I was visiting my dad's grave and and the cemetery. And I stopped off to have a beer at this place called Pine Tree Lodge, which is, you know, and, and it was packed. I had a mask on. I walked up and you can take the mask off when you go inside. But, you know, there's, there's these tables of people. I mean, there must have been a thousand people there. And some people walked up to me and noticed me right away and wanted to take some pictures. And then finally, this one table of girls and they were, you know, probably in their early 20s. They, they came over and they said, you know, we want to get a picture with you. We, we love your TikTok channel. And I said, oh, thank you, you know. And uh, the girl what, the girl looks at me and she goes, well, where are you from? And I said, here, from Beaumont, you know. <laughs> she, goes, she looked at me with the most confused look on her face. And she says, uh, and I said, where are you from? And she said, here, Beaumont. <laughs> I'm like, how does she not know that I'm from here? She I just know you from TikTok. And that was that was the start of something really cool. I was like, you know what? There's a whole other audience out there that, that is growing and it's beautiful. And, and so I, I love the, the fact that we can promote our and get our music out there in, in places that are unbridled, if you know what I mean. Cause there's, there's a, there's definitely a course that, that, a, music has to take it's got to go through the right channels it's got to you know go through the right people there are gatekeepers and then you have something like TikTok that's just wild and free and that's pretty dang exciting it's crazy uh it's funny i was with travis tritt last week and oh, he said the exact same thing dude the exact same thing he's like this TikTok deal is real uh what's the impact of what's the impact of social media Hold on a minute. I just had a call come in. All right, there you go. What's the impact of social media? You're active on social media. How has that impacted the industry and, and the way an artist promotes him or herself? Well, I, th I think mostly capitalized, you know, with that last answer, our, our dissertation, excuse me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it went off on a, on a ramble there, but, but it, it, it's access, you know, it's, it's, it's more access 
and it's personal access and uh and fans know it you know they know when it's real and you know there's no fancy anything you know we're not big production just you and your iphone and you're singing and and either it sounds good or it doesn't and you know some people would better serve not to do it <laughs> but it's and they and they know who they are uh no no disparaging anywhere here but but uh it, it just makes it fun you know seriously marty if uh if if you know fans are are interested they either like it or are they are they they're done they're out of there so the instant feedback i think is the most is the biggest thing you can get because think about this if you have a song and just say you have half a million dollars in a budget to promote that song for the life of that song and say the life of that song is going to be one year you got to sit down and strategically plan out how you're going to spend you know each bucket of money you go okay ten thousand dollars we're going to spend over here you know 20 over here all the travel it's, it's very expensive and just say that um the song dies at 35 and you mm -hmm. spend all that money and you work so hard and what you come to find out is is that it was the wrong timing for that song and and but you could have found that out in in 30 seconds on TikTok, or you could have found that out in in just a few, in just a few minutes with social media fans don't lie they tell you man and that's what i love about it is that honest feedback bam it's why i've always been such an advocate of live shows and doing a song in a live show and seeing if people like it if you can't please a live audience with it who's there for you anyway they've already spent the money they're your fans they're real they have bought in if you can't please them with a song and a live show, forget about it being a single or forget about putting it on your album. It just shouldn't be there. And I think in that way, music will absolutely, by demand, have to get better. It'll have to feed the fans what they want. You know, I don't think we're going to be hearing fans say, oh, I don't like this new style of music. I don't like this kind of thing. I think those days are over because their voices are louder. They're making them heard and they're the ones spending the money and they're not going to spend the money to go to a live show and listen to stuff that they don't like in the first place. So it's not going to happen. So I think it's great. You mentioned growing up in Beaumont. How did growing up there shape you? Uh, I think everybody's town shapes. I mean, I always say, you know, the saying takes a village you know, to raise a kid and you know, you're all, all of us are influenced by, uh, you know, whatever likes or prejudices or, or circles that we run in and in towns that you grow up in. Beaumont is a really blue collar town. You know, a lot of, a lot of uh, refinery workers, you know, uh, my dad was a welder and a boiler maker, build water tanks. And, and I grew up working in rice fields and, and uh, in any other job I could get and just learned how to work hard, you know, growing up, uh, graduated from Vider High School, which is just right at the next town, uh, right there. I lived in Beaumont most of my life and, and, uh, we'll be buried there, but it, it's, uh, it, it was a, it was a town at a time when I grew up, you know, live music was a very big deal, country music. And it, it stems all the way back to like Tex Ritter and even George Jones, they were from that area. And, so there was always, it always seemed like there were bars, you know, that you could play live country sounds. And, and there was one rule, you know, if you were going to work at any bar, you better keep people dancing because if they were dancing, they were hot and they were buying beer. And that's, <laughs> what, the, that's what the club owners wanted. So it shaped me, shaped my musical taste, uh, shaped me as an entertainer. Because uh, if you were going to make a living there, you know, I was competing against Mark Chestnut and Tracy Bird, and, and by God, I mean, you, you, th those guys had it together. They always had the best band. And um, so, you know, I, I probably uh, was, a, was, was a, a, I guess, where they were super traditional, you know, I wasn't afraid to venture out and even, you know, do some Travis Tritt songs, you know, like you, you just named Travis right there. So I, I grew up singing some of his songs in the bars and, you know, I've got a, I got a show coming up with him 
it's a radio thing. It's supposed to be a surprise. Uh, mm. I'm supposed to make a su- surprise guest appearance, but I got an idea that I think I'm going to walk out on stage and, uh, and start singing, help me hold on. Cause I, oh. I just, I just love that song. So do I. Baby, close that suitcase you've been packing. <laughs> yeah. He's the best. I love that dude. When, when did, when did music enter your life? When did that become part of your equation and your passion? When I was four, um, I remember standing up in the back seat of my, my, my mom's car, you know, before seat belts were mandatory. <laughs> Yeah, and I remember sat. I remember standing up, having my arms back on the, you know, back in the seat like this, standing up and singing. Um, I'm on top of the world, looking down on creation. <laughs> and I, I, I remember that song sticks in my head. And uh, uh, there's another one, uh, "Sunshine on My Shoulders," which is an old John Denver song. Mm-hmm. I used to sing that to my grandmother, and she would cry. And and I never understood why she would why she would cry when I would sing it, you know, it was just a little, it was cause I was so little and, you know, she, she was and still is my favorite person to ever live. And so there, you know, I had, I had encouragement too. My dad was a really good guitar player and singer and his dad was a professional uh, player. He played for Tex Ritter and he was a great singer and a welder. And so it just got handed down and, became part of my, I guess it was part of my DNA, you know, before I, when I was in the mother's womb, but I love it. You know, I love singing and it's a good thing knowing in your life, what you were supposed to do. And I think when I meet people, that seems to be the biggest, you know, conundrum for most people is that they're doing something that, that they don't love. And my brother-in-law just got a job uh, working in a, uh, in a nursery, you know, plant and trees and stuff like that. And he's always worked in the oil field pipeline, uh, you know, project coordinator and stuff like that. And he got this job and he's making less money. And he said, uh, what do you think? And uh, he goes, I got a big offer from a oil and gas company. What should I do? And uh, I said, are you happy? He said, yeah. And I said, is $15,000 more a year worth you being miserable? And the answer, you know, the answer to that question. And I'm like, hey, this is, you know, being happy, knowing what you were born to do and loving something you do. I do believe that there's a job for everybody. I, I believe that with all my heart. And I, I do believe that there are some people who actually like digging ditches, you know, so there are. God bless them. Yeah, yeah. And I believe that with all my heart, that there's a job for everybody. And you should be in one that you really like. When did you decide heading to Nashville was the right decision? Oh, the first time I went to Nashville, they ran me out on a rail. It was uh, not pleasant. What's that story? Tell me that story. Well, I was 17. I just graduated high school, and I got my guitar, threw it in the car, and took off to Nashville. I didn't didn't hardly have any money, but I had a a car that got good gas mileage, and I I (laughs) took off and – I got I got pulled over uh, in Nacogdoches, Texas, at two o'clock in the morning, uh, for a no inspection sticker, and uh, our expired inspection sticker. And the cop pulled me over, and uh, here I'm 17 years old. And he looked in the back seat. He goes, uh, "What's that?" I said, "My guitar." He said, "Where are you headed?" I said, "Nashville." He said, "You want to come back to the station and pick a little bit with me?" He said, "I." Uh, I said, "Really." He said, yeah, he said, I play fiddle. What? So I, I was thinking to myself, <laughs> man, I, I, don't have, I don't have the money to pay a ticket, you know, and can't afford that. Barely got enough gas money to make it to Nashville. Didn't have enough money for a hotel, so I had to sleep in my car. But I, I uh, went back, played some music with him. He let me go, gave me a warning. He said, hey, he said, uh, this warning ticket will help you get back. It's good for a week or whatever it was. He says, you know. Just show it to whoever he said, they might not honor it, but I think they will. And I made it to Nashville and uh, I had to sleep in my car the first night, but I'd met this guy named Doug Supernall. Oh, had, RIP, man. What a stud. Yeah. 
Yeah, man. He was, he was doing some shows. He was promoting shows back then. And then he also was a singer and, but he, he'd given me his number. He said, if you ever need anything, call me. And so I called him and he said, Hey, you know, he said, I got four kids. He said, but you can stay with me and my wife. He gave me a place to stay, took me around, introduced me to people. I had my demo tape and I went in all these record labels and every label in town turned me down every single label. And one guy said to me, he goes, you know, he says, uh, you're not that good of a singer. He said, but you're a good songwriter. He said, I would try to get a, I tried to get a, a publishing deal if I were you, a writer's deal. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I was crushed and left. And I said, by God, you know, just tell me I can't do something and watch me. <laughs> you know? so, I mean, I think that's the greatest thing you can tell an athlete or anybody that's competitive. And uh, I started working in clubs. And I made my mom a promise. You know, I, I didn't want to go to college because um, I wanted to be a singer. And she said, uh, you know, nobody in your family's ever gone to college. And I, I really wish you would go to go to college. You know, my, your dad didn't go. I didn't go. And, and uh, you know, no, none of your dad's brothers or sisters and my sister didn't go. We'd really like you to go to college. And I made my mom a promise. I said, if I can't make it, I said, if I can't get a record deal, in four years, I said, I, I, I promise you, I will go to college and get a degree. And, and, uh, and so I, I started working in bars five nights a week. And, uh, believe me, that's, that's hard breathing cigarette smoke and, and, uh, you know, every single night of your life. And then I would, I was working at Goodyear, uh, rubber plant, you know, where they make the tires, Goodyear tires are in Beaumont. And so I was working two jobs. I would I would literally work till two o'clock in the morning, go home, sleep three hours, get up, go to work at Goodyear, come home, sleep another three hours, then go go do the the gig again every night. I mean, this was, was every day, and uh, finally, you know, I started making enough money in the clubs that I could support myself. So I had a full time job doing that, and one night. Um, this guy from Opelousas, Louisiana, stopped in. His name was Nolan Simmons and uh, came in and kind of stood at the back of the room and watched me sing. And he, uh, Mark Chestnut had had a record. He already had a hit. He had Too Cold at Home and a couple of more. And then Tracy Bird had just gotten signed out of Cutters, the, the competing club across the, the town there. And so, you know, they say lightning doesn't strike twice, much less three times. And so, there are a lot of naysayers out there. And uh, my bass player at the time uh, who, who uh, passed away a few years ago has said to me, he said, uh, it's going to happen. He said, I know it is. If that guy walked in that, that club that night. He stood at the back of the room and he walked over to me and approached me. And he said, he goes, uh, he goes, seriously? He said, you got a million dollar smile. He said, and you sing, he said, it makes people happy. He said, I've been watching everybody in this club here for the last hour and a half. And he said, everybody is happy listening to you sing. And he says, uh, uh, I'm going to do something for you. And I said, what's that? Cause I'd heard every line you could possibly imagine, you know, in this imagine. he said, I'm sending somebody here next week. That's going to change your life. And he walked out. And the next week, James Stroud walked in. He was producing Clint Black at the time. Clint Black, Little Texas, uh, 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 fiddle player. Um, Charlie Blank here, excuse me. But uh, anyway, he he James Stroud walked in, and uh, he said, "I was sent here by a man." And I said, "I knew who it was." <laughs> and he <laughs> said, "Well, he said, let's see what you got." So I started singing. I sang about seven songs and he got up and started walking out. And I, I shut the set down, put my guitar down. I said, this guy ain't getting away from me. It's my one chance. So, man, I, I was trying to look cool as I could, but I was following him out the door and he was, he was getting in his car. And I said, Mr. Shroud, I said, I, I hope that uh, I didn't do anything to put you off or anything. And he goes, uh, no, son. He said, you're a superstar. He said, I'll see you in two weeks in Nashville. We're going to cut a record. Wow. <laughs> and that was the end of it. Wow. <laughs> or the beginning of it. <laughs> Unbelievable.
isn't it wild how the how the people in your life that come in and out of your life that you have no idea are going to have such a dramatic impact on your path and your and and ultimately what is chosen for you boom i mean that guy, your 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 buddy in that bar had no like he didn't get anything out of that he had no reason to to do that other than this guy's got a lot of talent he deserves bigger i'm going to help him go bigger fabulous yeah it was a it was a fast ride i got to be honest you know I, I had worked all those years in the clubs from the time i was actually 15 years old you know and uh funny story is is uh my first paying job was fifty dollars in george jones paving to play at his at his club in in a place called comas neal texas and it was it was called George Jones Country Music Park, and I was playing in in his club, and um, Randy Travis and George Strait were playing across the street at the park, and and George. What in the world kind of time warp is it? Where was I in this? I needed to be wherever the hell that was going on. It was amazing, and you know, um, this was the most this. This moment that I'm going to tell you about is like the most magical moment. Um, that night, Merle Haggard had come in town because he was going to play the next day with Jones. And Haggard and Jones sat down at the bar, at the actual bar. And Haggard had on a ball cap. And Jones is sitting there. And I'm, I'm in earshot range of them. And I'm, I'm 16 years old. And I, I and I'm listening to these guys, and Jones is wearing Haggard out about horns, about you know the clarinet and all the horn. He says, "I hate those freaking horns." He said, "Do you have to?" He was telling me how bad he hated the horns because they were out of tune. <laughs> he told Haggard, <laughs> "Do you have to do it?" I mean, you know, and it was, and Haggard's telling him, "I'll do what the you know I want to do." Yep. You know? Tell me what to do. I mean, it's just two old legends. Just, you know, I mean, they loved each other though. They absolutely adored each other. And uh, and and you're what you you are watching this happen as a 16 year old kid. Yep. Who can't even order a beer? <laughs> you know, I'm sitting there. I mean, I'm drinking cherry cokes up there, singing on stage, and, and I'm singing "Make the World Go Away." You know, an old uh, Eddie Arnold song. I'm doing every. I'm doing all their stuff too, and and. Uh, it was really cool. The next day Haggard came in from, I mean, uh, Jones came in from my sound check and, uh, talk about intimidating. And, uh, what did he say? Did you talk to him? Yeah. Yeah. He said, uh, he goes, you're going to make it. And he says, you don't have it right now. He said, but I know you're going to make it. And, uh, he said, you're going to have to hone your, your skill. He said, but I hear it. I was, he was, he waited for me to finish sound check and tell me that. And that, you know, it, it's just so weird because that night, you know, I mean, that day, Johnny Paycheck pulls up in back of the deal. He's, he's headlining in the club. I'm opening for Johnny Paycheck. So um, the night before, I'm sitting there with uh, Haggard and Jones, and Johnny Paycheck pulls up behind the, behind the, the club there, and I walk outside, and, I mean, I am awestruck. I don't even know what to do. So Johnny Paycheck's uh, – uh, road manager comes off the bus and says, is there any way I can get a picture with, with Johnny? And, and he goes, uh, he goes, absolutely. He said, Johnny loves, you know, young talent, you know? And, and uh, he goes, I know it. He stepped down in his sweatpants and took a picture with me and my sister. And I thought that was a, I, you know what, it, that shaped my life. I've never refused to take a picture with people or to give people auto. I, I, and that was like the most humble, I think, I, he had never even heard me. He knew nothing about me other than that my name was on that billboard with his and that I deserved respect. And then, and then that's the, and he gave it. And that is the kind of thing, you know, I wish you saw more between artists. You know, I, I think what has changed, most artists are so freaking jealous of each other that they never treat each other with kindness. And it, it, it really is, it's, it's nasty. You know, I, I have very few friends in this business and the ones I do, I love to death, but there's so much jealousy that, uh, that I don't, and I think they did it different back then. And 
I got to witness it. I loved it. Okay, so, you know, I interview people for a living, Clay Walker. I am very rarely in a position where I go, wait, like I'm, I'm almost rendered speechless. In the same story you just told me, that you were in the same room or and or aura as the possum, okay, as Merle Haggard and as Johnny Paycheck. That that's like, do you understand how stupid that is? That's unbelievable. They're all dead. I, I, I can't I can't even I can't even imagine it. Uh, all right, well, I got a few more. And I'll let you run. I know you're no, busy, hey, man. Hey, no, I'm I'm enjoying this. You know, we, I had a ten o'clock oh. all the way to eleven, but I I mean I'm I have nothing on the other side. I'm I'm enjoying well here with you, and and thank you for giving me the floor. And you know, if if I was the one interviewing you, I'd probably do more talking than listening. And you seem to listen pretty good. Well, I appreciate that very much. Uh, what was it like when you heard yourself on the radio for the first time? When was it? Where were you? What was the song? I was driving down um, – well, there's two different instances. The first time I ever heard myself on a radio, and this is this is not giving up. This is to tell the other entertainers out there, you know, whatever you're doing in life. There's plenty of walk-ons, you know, for college football and different different college sports that become legends. You know, a lot of people don't know that, that Michael Jordan uh, didn't make the team at North Carolina. Go figure that. He didn't make the team. Not 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 starting point guard or anything. I mean, he didn't make the team. You know, so and and he he said something right. I know I got more in me than that. And so I would say this. When I was 16, I had had put together one song I wrote on a demo and knocked on the door of a radio station at three o'clock in the morning until they let me in. And they told me they couldn't play it because they were a reporting station. They did play it as I was driving out of the parking lot. They listened to it and they liked it. And when I heard that, I knew that, you know, that was stronger than any drug you can imagine. And I had to have it again. So I didn't stop reaching for it. And then in 1993, in August, um, um, my song, What's It To You, which went number one, was uh, the second most added song at radio for a first week artist in country music history. And I'm, and I hadn't heard it on the radio yet. I was, in, I was back in Beaumont, my hometown and a song had just started climbing the charts and driving down the road and bam, it comes on the radio, KYKR in, 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 in Beaumont. And the girl that, that her name was, I think Chrissy, Chrissy Roberts, maybe, was the DJ. And I pulled over, and I want to tell you something. <laughs> my, my hands, I was shaking all over. I mean, just just like, just, you know, my, my wife calls it shinging. <laughs> I don't know where she gets that. <laughs> it's like a tuning fork. I mean, I was just, I couldn't believe it. And, and, and what was so cool is I was by myself in my truck. And I had it cranked. And I mean, I got to hear it from soup to nuts, from the downbeat all the way through. And I got, you know, tears in my eyes. And I was just like, all right, this is the greatest thing on earth. And I've never let go of that. You know, I love it today more than I loved it at that minute. And that is saying something. I understand why Tom Brady wants to win it, win a Super Bowl every single year. You never get tired of that if you really, truly love it. You know, why Brett Favre hung around, you know? And, uh, you know, I know some of those legends. And, uh, you know, Joe Montana is one of my closest friends. And I just, I love, you know, the competitiveness of that. And But there's a deep joy that comes from it. It's way more than competitiveness. And hearing my new song on the radio right now, you know, I'm drive, we're driving down to go get an ice cream the other day at this little drive through called Andy's. If you've never seen one, I think they're going to take over the country. They're so good. Oh, yeah. I got one about – I got one about uh, – I got one a driver from where I'm sitting. 
man, I wish I'd have thought of that concept. So I, we we were we were driving through Andy's and my daughter Mary, who's eleven, she's in the back back seat of the of the of, of the suburban, and she goes, uh, she goes, uh, Dad, your song's on the radio. Well, I'm not thinking anything about it because you know a lot of songs come on the radio, you know, whatever channel we listen to, whatever. But she was the new one, and I mean, I lost it, man. I'm like, you know, like, here's a volume now. You know, I mean, I'm cranking it up, man. And wouldn't you know, we're next in line, and and the guys waiting to take order. I'm going, no, no, no. <laughs> but anyway, the whole family was going crazy, you know, and that's 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 the joy, you know. Um, I was gonna. I was going to ask that, man. I have a lot of buddies who are, you know, in my real job who are athletes, right? And it's one thing when you experience success or, or the pinnacle of whatever your trade is as someone who's single or doesn't have children. But then when you get to a point where you're experiencing that as a father, it's a whole other plateau. What's it like to experience it as a dad? Well, I realizing how much it has affected their lives. Um, like my, my, my kids said something the other day to me, they just struck me right to the core. They go, dad, we want to just get on the bus and we'll do a show with you. Mm. I went, Oh my gosh, they miss it too. You know? And so like, they love seeing me at my best, you know? And, uh, you know, I do other things too, but, nothing as well as I sing or perform and they, they see that joy, you know, when they do come to a show, they can, they can see it all over me. And they, and the, the beauty of it is they, they love, they love hearing me sing, you know, even on the radio or even around here, you know, they're constantly running by, you know, Alexa screaming, Hey, Alexa play, you know, long live the cowboy by Clay Walker, you know, or they'll or <laughs> play, play to the bar sometime. I mean, they, they seriously do this all day long. And, that that's the that's the biggest form of flattery that you can that you can get is when your kids want to hear hear you sing and so yeah it's it's beautiful and uh, they also know that that I work hard at it they see me you know go down into the dungeon I call it you know down in the got I got a wine room that's got a stone in it and everything and so the, your your voice carries a little more there and so I'll go in there and and, it, and you can hear imperfections a lot easier you know and so it it's really helping me find every little place in my on my vocal cords and i can't wait for the first fans that get to hear me sing because it's going to be the best i've ever sang in my life <laughs> i love it speaking of fatherhood hold on just a minute hey mima daddy's doing an interview could you just be quiet for me for a second there you go. That's fatherhood right there, Clay Walker. Uh, <laughs> she's, are you doing virtual class or talking to your friends? Whatever. I don't know what the, I don't know what she's doing. Uh, I like your uh, I like your your bar back behind you. I thank you, man. Man, real quick, check this out. I've got some of those same things too. I love it. That's fabulous. Yeah, mine extends. Mine actually extends down that way. So you want, here, here's inside baseball for you. So when I'm interview, interviewing one of you guys via Zoom, uh, I have this as my background. When I'm doing Sports Center or something like that, I have, the other side of my bar has Alabama's football helmet, Ohio State's, Florida's, Virginia Tech's. Like I have football helmet side over there. So uh, I have a little diversity in my backgrounds. So tell me, because um, you you know, I mean, I know you've had a lot of interviews, but in the sports world, football, who would have been like one of the ones that you're, and I know there's many, so I'm not asking you to pick a favorite, but who was one that you were just like, you could not believe you even got that, that spot to interview that guy? Who was it? In football. Uh, <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot of them, and and throughout sport, there's a lot of them. I never dreamed I would have had the opportunity to interview Tiger Woods. I would have never dreamed I would have had the opportunity to, like Sam, uh, my buddy who produces this podcast for me, he and I went to 
China together to chase Cristiano Ronaldo around for eight days. Uh, and he might be the most famous athlete on the globe. He's one of them. And so there, there's, there's a bunch of, I mean, like, I, I, at this point, it's not odd to interview Nick Saban anymore. Right. But when I, when I was first doing it, uh, it was like, man, this is the greatest of all time. This is the greatest college football coach of all time. And I, I'm having the opportunity to kind of be in his aura and have his attention and do my very best to be prepared enough to get respect for the preparedness, if that makes sense. He's my favorite college coach of all time. I mean, I'm sure he's a lot of people's, you know, I mean, I love winners obviously, but uh, he's done it with so many different athletes year after year after year. And coaches. I had the flu the year that Clemson beat them so badly. I, I mean, I felt so, I, even I had the flu and I felt bad for him. It's the first time I've had the flu since I was, a kid. <laughs> I was just like, he, that was a thrashing. And I want to tell you something to recover from that as a man, that was a beat down. Yeah, was. <laughs> okay. And he got back up off the ground and swung and knocked them out. I mean, that right there, you know, this year through COVID, through everything, you can say whatever you want to say, but uh, everybody had to deal with the same hurdles. And he found a way, didn't he? Every time he finds a way. Yeah, it's fascinating, really, and and not to get off on a on a tangent, but what what I marvel most about with him is the fact that he's able to sustain excellence and be the standard by which everyone else is measured in a time when he has the best players, many of whom leave after three years, and he also has so much coaching turnover. Because of their success, his coordinators are always getting taken to be head coaches elsewhere. So, whereas like Dabo Sweeney, who's another standard-bearing program at Clemson right now, to your point about the thrashing a few years back in Santa Clara, they've had the same coaches other than one guy. Clemson's had the same coaches for 12 years. And that continuity offers so much consistency. Saban doesn't have that. Like, his offensive coordinator, Steve Sarkeesian, just got taken. I don't know if you're Longhorn or not. You may or may not be. But they just, you know, Sark's going down there to, to Austin to try to revive. I'm an Aggie. Uh, okay. Well, Jim, Jimbo's my boy. Jimbo's my boy, Clay. And they, had a hell, they had a hell of a season. He's, he's got it humming down there in College well, Station. You know, the, the Longhorns, I always like to see them do well, too. Just, just, just not better than the Aggies and – that hadn't been the case, you know, so anyways. But the talk about a program that it's hard to believe, you know, that you could have that much at your fingertips and can't build a program on the Longhorns. That's pathetic. You know, so how many coaches have been in there and uh, since Mac Brown. And uh, how about old Mac? He did a, he did a good job at, at uh, North Carolina, didn't he? They're, they're, they're killing it in recruiting. Uh, they have a lot of talent, and he's done such a great job. And I'll tell you, Clay, I mean, he's like a, he's like a father to me. Uh, we are very close. I Is love right? him so much. Oh, man. And Nothing but respect. Nothing but respect for that guy. He's a wonderful person. Uh, all right, man, a couple more. A couple more. Uh, Sorry to get I us off track there, but I love no! sports. I'll I talk sports all day long, too, now. You know, that's like I'll talk it all day. Uh, if I could make a living, I did not know this, was written by Alan Jackson. I had no idea until very recently. I know. I, sorry, sorry. I, I just I gotta go there, bro. I gotta go there. <laughs> no, no, I'm teasing. You have to be one of the only people who's heard the demo. Yeah. What was it like hearing him sing it? Because you once you know that, you can totally. It's like, oh, uh, yes, that is an Alan Jackson song. <clears throat> well, James Stroud came out to um, uh, to on the road with me. You know, we had all that success on the first album. It was just booming. You know, like came out gangbusters, and I was on the road. Like we we were doing 230, 240 shows a year, which you know I'll never do again. That was brutal. Um, but we we're trying to make money and and get it while it was there. And and Stroud comes out and he has this box of demo tapes. You know, back then it was cassette tapes and uh, or CDs. This was a CD, and 
he said, uh, I got these, these songs. He played me four songs and, uh, uh, one, the, the first song he played was, uh, make a living. And I was writing, you know, I was writing, still do. I write a bunch. I wrote, I wrote this entire new album, you know, and, uh, so I, I was writing a lot of songs and, and, uh, so, you know, I was pretty picky about what I was going to cut and, he played make a living and I looked at him, you know, one sentence in and I, I knew it was Alan Jackson. I was like, that's weird. And so <laughs> you know, it, 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 the song got done and, uh, and I said, uh, I said, why isn't Alan cutting that? I, I said, he just sing it. Was he a demo singer then or, or something? And he goes, no, he said, um, they, uh, they got, they got what they wanted for his album and this, this song, kind of fell through the cracks. And I said, well, I said, if I put this song on hold and I go cut it, I said, does he have the right to jerk it from me and use it, you know? And Cause I didn't know Alan at the time. By, by the way, Alan's a perfect gentleman. You know, he wouldn't do something like that anyway. And uh, he goes, no, he goes, uh, if you take the song, it's yours. I said, James, I said, this is a smash I said, monster I, I said i'm not talking about a number one hit i said that's a career record i said something is off here something's wrong with alan i said that he ain't hearing this and he goes he goes clay if you want it it's your song and this is the craziest thing i cut that song and i, I was so high on it not only did i did i was it the first single it was the album title yeah to, right it goes number one. The song is only a minute and 56 seconds long. And uh, it, which I think is another cool thing, but the, uh, the co-writer on it was Keith Stegall, who is Alan Jackson's producer for life. Right. Guess where Keith Stegall lives today. His mailbox and mine face each other across no the street. Way. That's I, I fabulous. You can't even that make this up. You, you can't make it up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and and it's, just, it's just crazy, right? Just absolutely crazy. So he, he's my next door neighbor across the street, not next door, but across the street neighbor, he and his wife. And uh, the second song that James played me was This Woman and This Man. Both of those songs, career records for me. And James played them back to back. And I said, you got to, I said, I feel like I just fell into a bucket of horseshoes. This is, <laughs> this is unbelievable. And Hey man, I mean, it, it's, it's been a crazy ride, but it all starts with a great song. And, and I've often said this, you know, different singers will ask me for advice or, and, and, uh, and I, and I tell them, you know, look at George Strait. George Strait, until recently, had, had never written any song that he recorded. Got 60 number one hits. He knew that it's about the song. It's the song. And, and George is a phenomenal singer, by the way. But I will tell you that an average singer can be a mega superstar with superstar songs. But a superstar singer, like someone that sings unreal with, with average songs will never be anything. It's not, you know, you hope you can sing good, but trust me, it's the song that matters. People know it. Uh, I had one other thing I wanted to touch on and that's your multiple sclerosis battle, I guess might be the right, right term or, 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 that being a part of your life, uh, how did that kind of manifest itself and what's been the impact of that on the way you live your life? That's been a journey, you know, and, and a good one in my life, you know, adversity, uh, you know, can, can, can build, you know, strength in you and, uh, can also show you, you know, where you come from and, you know, this is a story, you know, for people who believe. When I was diagnosed, <clears throat> I 
thought I had a tumor like pressing on my brain or something because I couldn't, I couldn't see I had double vision. I couldn't touch my fingers together. I was dragging my leg. I had a twitch in my face had all kinds of things going on. And I went in and my aunt had had Lou, Lou Gehrig's disease and she lived for 27 years. She's one of the oldest, longest living people with, with, with ALS of all time. And so, man, they started doing the testing on me and um, they found that I, that I had MS, but that wasn't the worst news. The worst news was the prognosis. And what I had so many lesions on my brain stem and spinal cord and brain that my prognosis was that I would be in a wheelchair in a couple of years and then dead in a couple more. <clears throat> and so, you know, taking that and swallowing that at 26 years old and um, my career was absolutely exploding. I mean, it was just started, just started. And uh, I remember, you know, the doctor telling me, you know, he handed me some papers too on it. He said, and I was devastated. I was completely devastated. And I ended up with a doctor uh, who's atheist and, uh, just a phenomenal doctor. And, uh, you know, he had, he had the same opinion of what was going to happen to me prognosis wise. And I remember <clears throat> going into my, my room where I would write songs and stuff. And I laid down on the floor and I, I started praying and I, I literally was on my face just face down crying and praying and not, not sobbing, but just crying and praying to God. And, you know, my, my mother raised all of us Christian and, and uh, she's, she's very devout, but I wasn't. And, and I just remember that, that moment there was a, there was an inflection in my life right then because I knew I was going to die. And I, I told God, I said, I know and feel in my heart that you actually put me here for something else. Please just show me what I'm missing. I, I want to do it. And if you want to take me, that's, that's okay too. And this, this moment, you know, this, uh, I could hear God speak to me. And I stood up and I never cried again. The disease arrested, and it's a miracle. They've never seen it before, my doctors. And, uh, you know, the progressive, the progressive state of it was that I should be dead. The disease arrested, and uh, over a period of years, you could see the debility that it had caused, you know, the, the initial attacks. I had like five, six, seven attacks right in a row. And so, you know, I had weakness in my legs, weakness in my arm, hand, and uh, and I went back, you know, I go for an annual checkup and MRI every year, and they put you on this MRI for two hours, and it's, it's, it's brutal. And they inject you with dye in your arm and all this stuff. And I remember one year I came out of the MRI machine, I looked at my doctor, and I said, I'm, I'm done with this. He said, why? I said, God's already told me this ain't going to take me. <laughs> I, said, <laughs> I said, and I believe it. <laughs> I said, so I'm not getting back in this damn machine. <laughs> I said, you're not putting this stuff in my arm anymore. I just got to quit, <laughs> you know? And so it was, you know, and, and I will say this, I do believe in science. I do believe in, in medical help and it works, you know, that, and, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't do what happened to me. There's no medication that does what happened to me. And so here's one better for you. Two years ago, I go back and they do all the strength testing. And my improvement looks like a hockey stick. Wow. I, can, I can run like the wind. You know, I have strength. I have no debility. And, um, 
that's only coming from one. If mine quit, mine froze maybe. I don't know if I froze or if he froze. Yeah, it's not yours. He froze uh, here also. He froze? Okay. Well, that stinks that he froze right then. As we told you guys at the top of the podcast, Clay's internet had a little bit different intention than he and I did to close out the podcast and say goodbye. I want him to know how grateful I am for his time, how grateful I am for his insight. And again, as, as, a, as a kid of the late 80s and the 90s, that's part of the soundtrack of my, of my growth as a person. Just awesome to get to spend that time with him. So thank, thank you, Clay, for your time and the amazing stories. And damn it, your internet. It happens. It has happened to me once. If you guys remember episode two, my internet decided not to work and I had to go to the coffee shop up here, the water bean, to do my interview with Kix Brooks. Thank you guys so much for your investment uh, in The Road You Leave Behind. It's the pleasure of my life to get to do these interviews with people that I consider heroes and people who shaped my life through their work and their passion. Thank you for your passion for what we're doing with this project here on Outsider. Have an amazing day. Thank you so much. Be well. This is The Road You Leave Behind on Outsider Media.